you know, Thanksgiving is over, and it's now time, officially time, to listen to Christmas music. You're allowed now. Um, now that Thanksgiving's over, it seems all right that stores have Christmas candy out and so forth and so on. And um, I will do my best to avoid hearing All I Want for Christmas is You once again this year, because it's the worst Christmas song in history. Um, sorry if you like it. I'm sorry. But one of the things the season brings with it is sticker shock. Uh, I don't know if you experience this. Maybe it's the sign of aging now that I experience sticker shock when I go to the store and I'm like, that's how much? I feel like I'm like one step removed from that old man telling you about penny candy. But I don't know if that was a thing. None of you are that old. That was a compliment. Uh, <laughs> none of you are that old. But uh, things are more costly now than they used to be. And I was looking up Christmas gifts for my son, and I'm like, that's how much? Like, surely it's a piece of plastic. It shouldn't cost $35, but it does. I experienced sticker shock back in June. We had flown to San Antonio, and then from San Antonio, we were going to drive uh, three and a half hours to South Texas to, to visit my wife's grandmother, uh, who lives down there. And we were trying to figure out how to best organize our time and you know, we're traveling with a four-year-old, which is not always the easiest thing to do. So we're trying to make the car ride as enjoyable as possible after a long day of travel. So we thought we'd order a pizza from a pizza shop, pick it up, eat it in the car. That would kill some time. And so I found a pizza shop that had great reviews for my gluten-free diet. I placed an order for two pizzas. We parked the car in San Antonio. I ran into the pizza shop and went to the bar to pick up my pizza. And she handed me the bill for it. And I was like, I looked at it and I, I did like a double take. I'm like, surely this can't be my receipt because two pizzas was 68, 68 bucks for two pizzas. Now, it was the best gluten-free pizza I've ever had in my life. But it was pizza that was $68. And I gulped real big and I tried to figure out how I was going to tell my accountant wife that we just spent $72 on pizza. And also... Um, tried to figure out how it was, tell her it was worth it because it was that good. Sticker shock. Things are costly. In 1970, the average cost of a home was $23,000. Can you imagine? Now in the United States, the average cost of a home is $439,000. That is crazy. Sticker shock. Well, today, um, Jesus is going to give some people sticker shock about the cost of following him. Because the cost is going to be high to follow Jesus. And that though the kingdom is entered into freely, that though the kingdom is like a big banquet that you're invited to and it's and it's free and all the food is paid for by the king, it also costs us something. And we're going to see here in this passage, um, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer used to say, he was a pastor who was um, killed in Germany during World War II, uh, he says that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We will see that in our text together. So if you have a Bible, grab it, turn to Luke chapter 14, and let's look at verses 25 and following together. This is what St. Luke says, now great crowds were traveling with him, that is Jesus. So he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, And does not hate his own father and mother, 
wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king would not sit down and decide if he's able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now, salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, would you give us ears to listen to you this morning? Would you give us hearts eager to obey you and follow you? We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus has just gotten done eating at a Pharisee's house. And now crowds are gathering around him, more and more people. He has a sort of appeal so that more and more people are curious. People are following him. And you got uh, skeptical people. you got curious people. You have people fascinated by Jesus. You have people doubtful. You have some believing. You have some excited. You have some expectant about what Jesus would do or say next. And yet, these were people like you and me following Jesus. And these people were like Jesus's groupies. They just kind of went from place to place with him. And who wouldn't want to be around Jesus, right? He's healing people. He's, he's saying, um, encouraging good news that those who are furthest from God now have a place at God's table. Who wouldn't want to be around Jesus? So he got all of these people curious, excited, doubtful, expectant with him. And Jesus turns And the text opens up when Jesus is saying, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father or mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Sticker shock, right? Way to kill the mood, Jesus. Got all these people around you. They're all excited about you. And he turns around and says that, hey, if you don't hate your own life and your relationships... You can't be my disciple. Jesus lays out the cost of following him. And before we unpack all of that, I want us to back up a little bit and lay out what Jesus means when he says disciple. Now, disciple is not a concept that churches invented. It was a concept that was embedded into the culture of the time of Jesus. To be a disciple was to learn the way of a rabbi, to learn the way of someone else, to sit at the feet of someone else and to to let their teaching kind of wash over you and direct your life. To be a disciple at the time was to take on the way of another to listen to their teachings, and to believe that they were right enough to orient your life 
like theirs, so that you eventually look like the rabbi that you were following. That's what it means to be a disciple. It was to take on a life shaped by another person. And so when we say discipleship, and when we say following Jesus, like what we're talking about is following him in such a way that his way of being in the world becomes our way of being in the world. We've used a quote a bunch around here, and it bears repeating. It's a disciple is someone who follows Jesus in the everyday stuff of life and teaches others to do the same. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. That means someone who learns what it looks like to take on the way of King Jesus in such a way that it shapes our relationships, that it shapes our relationship to stuff, that it shapes our relationships to self, that it shapes our relationships to finances, and so on, and so on, and so on. The everyday stuff of our lives. And when Jesus lays out the cost of following him, he gets real, and he gets honest. Because to be a disciple, you must love him above all else in your life. You must love him above all else in your life. Or as Tony Morita says, and he was really helpful for me this week, he says that Jesus must be your supreme love over everything else in your life. Jesus says that you must hate your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, and even your very self. He must be the first relationship in your life. Nothing else can Nothing else can reign supreme in your life if you want to follow Jesus. He must be first. He must be the priority. And now what does Jesus mean by hate? Because hate is kind of a strong word. And maybe after your holiday meal with extended family, you're there. Uh, you're like already with Jesus. I'm with you, Jesus. But what Jesus is doing is being hyperbolic. He's, used, he's being emphatic and trying to say that Nothing else should come close to him in the priority list. To be a disciple means you must love Jesus beyond every other relationship that you have. See, it's not like this first list here where we kind of have our priorities and Jesus kind of sits at the top of our priorities. Then we've got our wife or kids or self, our mom and dad, and, um, and so forth and so on. Like that's sometimes the way we think. But Jesus is not getting at that. He's, he's saying that he won't even have a close second. It's more like this, where Jesus is at the top and nothing else even comes close to him. He must be your biggest relational priority if you're a Christian. He must have all of your love. Another way to think of it, and this is the way that's most helpful for me, is Jesus must be at the center of your life. He must be the one that you orient all of your life around. The sun, as it were, that everything else just orbits around. He must be the defining relationship you have. And friends, if he isn't, then you just can't be a disciple of Jesus. It will not work. Jesus must be loved supremely, if you're going to be his disciple. He won't have competition. You cannot follow Jesus with the leftovers of your life. He must 
be the main course. And friends, this means that you even deny yourself. Jesus urges us to carry the cross. Look at what he says. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be a disciple's. The cost of following Jesus means bearing our own cross. And the cross at the time, and Jesus using these kind of words would have been inflammatory because crosses were elements of shame, were instruments of deep shame in a culture. And Jesus is saying that your reputation, it's going to cost you your reputation to follow me. You're going to need to be willing to lay down your life. You must be willing to even be persecuted to follow me because this is what it's likely going to cost. And in this time and in this time period, Jesus wasn't just describing like something that, that might happen. Jesus was describing a real reality for people that would follow him in this time and place. And you can look in church history and see what's happened to those apostles who followed him. It didn't end well, but they got Jesus. See, the kingdom of God is like a banquet where anyone can come to you. It's free. Come. Christ paid for all of it. It's free. But when you follow him, it will inevitably cost you something. Which leads to our second point. That a disciple will love Jesus, and then a disciple will count the cost. Following Jesus will cost you something. It costs people in the ancient world to follow Jesus. And then, but he urges us to be people who count the cost, and he gives two quick parables about that. The first is about a builder who builds a tower. And Jesus says, like, which one of you who wants to build a tower? Now, this might not have been like a war tower. This may have been like a grain tower that you would build to store, to store grain. But which one of you who wants to build a tower doesn't first figure out how much it's going to cost, and then you buy it? And pretty obvious, right? And Jesus says that if you don't, like, if you don't count the cost, what will end up happening is you'll end up laying the foundation and realize, well, man, this costs a lot of money. I don't have enough to finish it. And then everyone will ridicule you for not finishing it. And Jesus is saying that if you, if you don't count the cost of following Jesus, if you don't really assess what it's going to cost you to follow him, you could, you could end up like this builder. That you could say, I follow Jesus, but you never follow through on following Jesus because you didn't realize what it's actually going to cost. And you just fade and fizzle out. Jesus jumps into the second parable. Look at verse 31. Or what king, going to war against another king, will not first sit down and decide if he's able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So what's going on here? Well, if this king did not count the cost of going to war or did not count the cost of peace, it could cost him everything. It could be a great loss. So so a king going to war is going to count the cost, right? Because he doesn't want to lose everything. And so you must count the cost, friends. Like a king counts the cost of going to war, realizing that it's going to take everything, so we're called to count the cost. See, Jesus must be your supreme love, and you must love him over every relationship of your life. 
but he also will not compete with your stuff. You must love him with all of your possessions. And we see things, friends, that see this, friends, that deciding to follow Jesus isn't a decision that is to be taken lightly. Because once you follow him, you need to continue to follow him with everything. And so, friends, uh, this means that we need to relinquish control of what we have to realize that it all belongs to him. Jesus says, in the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all of his possessions cannot be my disciple. Jesus will not share occupancy of your heart with anyone. He is Lord. He must be Lord. He must be followed with everything. He wants it all. We sing it on Sunday. Jesus have it all. My, my heart, my will, my very breath, Lord Jesus, have it all. And we need to count the cost of following him. And these are the things, like, if we're honest, if you're, if you're a Christian, like, these are the things that continue to threaten our faith and our walk with Jesus. What others think of us? What we love? Our possessions? Our comfort? These are the things that are threats to our own faith sometimes. And we need to count the cost. Like, where am I getting too comfortable? Where am I letting my possessions take over my life? What do I love more than Jesus? We need to be honest about these things and keep giving these things to Jesus in an ongoing way. And man, like, as, as a sinful person living in a broken world, I feel this pull myself. Like, I feel the pull, the draw to comfort. I feel the pull to draw, the draw to be liked. I feel the pull, the draw to love things more than God. I feel those things. And Jesus isn't condemning us for feeling those things. He's inviting us to give those things to him. And one of the things that we just need to be honest about is that we want Jesus sometimes to be easy. We don't want it to actually cost anything. But I think like living in the world, friends, in more and more with a culture that isn't predominantly Christian, we're going to feel that following Jesus is going to cost us something. Following Jesus is going to cost us like a political home. We'll be politically homeless because we say Jesus is Lord and not whoever is president. We will feel isolated from people who think that we're crazy because we, we think that a dead man literally got up again and walked out of a grave. It might cost us something, but, but most of us sometimes, we just want Jesus to be a nice attachment to our lives to kind of make them better. But Jesus won't have that. He wants to be Lord of our lives and to realize that what he's doing in the world is greater than the comfort that comes from man. It's greater than being liked. It's greater than anything else. Jesus wants to be Lord. And one of the things that I feel like the need to point out to you as as kind of a Bible geek is what Luke is doing here. Because what we have in this passage in Luke 14, 25 to 35, is we have kind of the snowball of Luke. Luke introduced something way back in chapter 4 when he said that, when Jesus said that I've come to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty um, 
to those who are captive, sight to the blind, bind up the brokenhearted. He said that in chapter 4. And then in in chapter 6, he laid out the way of Jesus, where Jesus says that the blessed life, that the happy life, that the makarios, that's the Greek word, that the whole life is is for those who are poor, because what do they get? They get the kingdom of God now. He says, blessed are you who are hungry now because you will be filled later. Blessed are you who are weep now because you will laugh later. Blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and insult you and slander you because of the Son of Man. Like Jesus is saying that the whole life looks like actually following him. And now Luke has been coming back to these themes over and over and over again. And we finally get to Luke 25 where he's saying that, hey, you have to decide, is this the whole life or isn't it? And if you choose to follow me, it will cost you. It will cost you. But notice what Jesus guarantees. Because we must consider the cost of following Jesus, but we also need to consider the cost of not following Jesus. Because Jesus guarantees the kingdom of God right now, that when you follow him, you get a relationship with God. That when you follow him, you're saying that, Jesus, I want to learn your ways because you have started the kingdom and I believe you have and that it changes everything. And I want to bring back this slide because we need to count the cost of not following him. And we need to do it with an eternal perspective because look at the contrast Luke set up in chapter in chapter 6, that though we might experience poverty, though we might be hungry, that though we might weep because of the brokenness in the world, that we might be persecuted because we follow Jesus, look at what we get. We get fullness. We get laughter. We get rewarded. But notice, those who choose to live for the now instead of living for eternity, they might be rich. You might be full. You might laugh because your life is easy, and you might be liked. But that is choosing a life that exists only for now and not for eternity. Because you might get fullness now, but you'll get emptiness later. You'll get hunger later. you get weeping later because you didn't submit your life to the Lord of all creation. You must count the cost of following Jesus. And you must be honest about counting the cost about not following Jesus. Jesus either is who he said he was and did what he came to do. And you must live in light of that. Or you must be honest about what it could cost you. And I would like to encourage you, if you don't know Jesus, that it's worth betting on Jesus here. Blaise Pascal was a French philosopher who's famous for this concept called Pascal's Wager, which is about the belief in God and whether or not it's worth believing in God. And he said this, and I don't have this, but he said, belief is a wise wager. Granted that faith cannot be proved, what harm will come to you if you gamble on its truth and it proves false? If you gain, you gain all. If you lose, you lose nothing. Wager then, without hesitation, that he exists. And what Pascal is saying is that to bet on Jesus might cost you 
but it will gain you everything if he's right. And I think he's right. Friends, betting on Jesus will gain you everything and lose nothing. Luke says, a man's life isn't found in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus says, what good is it if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Jesus also said, whoever saves his life will lose it. But ever, whoever loses it, that means gives it all to Jesus, will save it. A disciple loves Jesus and a disciple counts the cost and realizes that he is worth following because he is right. And we realize and we're honest that following him will cost us our reputation, could cost us our standing in the world, could cost us ourselves. But finally, a disciple is called to live as salt. A disciple lives as salt. Look at verse 34. He says, now salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. Salt. We use it for seasoning. So did they. Um, a dish without salt tastes terrible, typically. Uh, they used it for seasoning, but they also used it as a, an accelerant for lighting fires. They would have throw a bunch of manure on a fire, throw some salt on it. And because of the way they harvested salt back then, it wasn't as pure as it is. It wasn't always as pure as it is now, so it would it would occasionally leave behind a residue. And once that happened, all the salt had evaporated the ray and the residue was what's left. And you couldn't use it either to season things or to start a fire with. So it was basically useless. And the warning in the passage is that in time, if we haven't counted the cost, we'll be like that kind of salt. That we might say we follow Jesus But in the end, as time goes on, our life doesn't really match his. It doesn't look like discipleship. It doesn't look like the way of Jesus. And it is a warning. If we've claimed to be a Christian, but not counted the cost, not actually made Jesus our first love, in time, we could just fade away. And we would not really look like Jesus. Christian, you're called to be all in for Jesus. And if you're all in for Jesus, if you've died to self, you will be salt. You will live in a way that that blesses and encourages others. You will live in a way that reflects our Savior. You will find real relationships where you're able to receive others. And instead of restlessness, you will find contentment. Because this is the subversive way of the kingdom of God. That Jesus calls us to give up things. He calls us to count the cost. But in the kingdom of God, what's what's crazy is that suddenly, when we release things back to God that are actually his, when we love him supremely, Above all things, the very things that we thought we had, we realize only had us. And that when we give them back to Jesus, we live for serving others. We live 
for the benefit of others. We live really being able to receive relationships. We live from a place not of insecurity, always wondering what people think, but in a place of real security because we know that God thinks highly of us in Jesus and loves us. That we, that we can live for our possessions, but they will end up wondering, do I have enough? Am I measuring enough? Is there enough in my 401k? But when we realize that when we place them before the feet of King Jesus and follow him, that, that he replaces that always wondering if I have enough with the sense of, I have everything I need. That is the subversive way of the kingdom, that the very things we're looking for aren't found in anything else. They're found in Jesus. Because as a Christian, you live as a citizen of the kingdom. To be salt means we will love others truly and meaningfully. To be salt means that we'll live as heralds of the kingdom, that we tell other people about Jesus, the good news, that Christ came to rescue us, and that there is a banquet a party that God is throwing, and that anyone can come. To be salt means that we live, excuse me, as a servant of the king, as people who counted the cost, we serve Jesus. And finally, we live as a servant of all. To be a disciple is to take on the way of Jesus. To be a disciple means that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die, But in doing that, we discover what real life looks like in him. Because our life starts to look an awful lot like his. The king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The king who came to preach good news to the poor and bind up brokenhearted people like you and me. The king who came to love his enemies by dying for them. The king who came that we might have abundant life. Friends, if, if you want life, abundant life, you will count the cost and realize that following Jesus is worth it. And come and die and come and find life in him. Friends, as we conclude today, I thought it would be helpful to just put up three reflection questions this morning. To kind of help us apply this to our lives. First one is, what do I love most in my life? And do my actions line up with my words? Do you love Jesus? Does it look like that with how you relate to others? How you relate to your stuff? Second, have I yielded it all to Jesus? Is he my Lord? Or or are there other areas where I have been reluctant to give him control? What are those areas? And finally, does the way that I live mirror to the world the way of Jesus? Friends, Jesus invites you into relationship with him. It's a relationship that just be costly. It cost him his very life so that you and I could find life in him. And he's a king who paved the way for us. He's the king who won't ask anything of us that he hasn't done himself. He's the king who who comes to us and says, follow my ways. He doesn't say, do as I say, not as I do. He says, do as I do. And he invites us to follow him, to count the cost, to realize that he is worth it. 
and to realize that the greatest cost came upon him who gave his life freely for us so that we could live freely in him. We're about to take communion. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I just want you to know that communion is not for you. It's for those who have counted the cost to follow King Jesus. But if you're here today and you are a Christian, I want to encourage you to come forward down the center aisle after I pray, take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, and take as you're ready. And remember what it costs Jesus so that though we follow him imperfectly, we can rest secure in his love. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread and gathered with his disciples. He broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, Jesus took a cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray.